0: an awesome God in the blue states. The the president's uh, problem is that he was born a Muslim.
1: Not God bless America, God damn America!
0: My Christian faith then has been a sustaining force for me over these last few years. Marriage itself
1: is now being redefined and at a very incredible velocity. President Obama made it very clear that he wanted to be the abortion president. Amazing grace How sweet the sound Welcome to the history of evangelicals in politics, the Obama era. This is episode one, the religious making of a president. I'm John Fia. On November 7, 1984, I was about two thirds of the way through the first semester of my freshman year at Philadelphia College of Bible. I was seated in the back right corner of Chatlos Memorial Chapel as the assistant to the college president his name was Jamie. Opened our required morning service with a word of prayer. His prayer gave thanks to God because the previous day, election day, Ronald Reagan won a second term as president of the United States in a landslide victory over former Minnesota senator and vice president Walter Mondale. Students and faculty at Philadelphia College of Bible were not usually prone to emotional outbursts during chapel. After all, this was a school that believed the spiritual gifts, such as tongue speaking and other dramatic manifestations of the Holy Spirit, had ceased with the age of the apostles. We usually sat attentively and listened respectfully in accordance with the staid and rational faith informed by the school's dispensational approach to biblical interpretation. But I swear I heard someone yell, Amen, as Jamie with what appeared to be clear insight into God's will in all things political, prayed a prayer of gratitude for the election results. Reagan had been reelected, and God's will had been done on earth as it is in heaven. About three years earlier, on a warm July afternoon, I was seated at the kitchen table in the Northern New Jersey house where I grew up. I was also praying all the faith I could muster, I was reading a prayer of salvation I found in the back of a small devotional booklet called Our Daily Bread. That prayer changed the trajectory of my life. From this point forward, I would identify as a born-again Christian. I was 15 years old. My parents prayed this prayer, or at least a similar one, months before I did. They left the church of their childhood, and my childhood, and joined a new congregation. I actually wouldn't even call it a congregation. I'd much more call it an intentional evangelical community. The Christians at Gilgal Bible Chapel in West Milford, New Jersey, welcomed our family with open arms. And for the next several years, I threw myself into the life of this evangelical commune with reckless abandon. I was a regular at Wednesday Night Youth Group, served as a leader in the junior high ministry on Friday nights, devoted my summers to working as a counselor in the church day camp, and spent Saturdays hammering nails as part of a Habitat for Humanity-like construction ministry that helped those in need. During these years, roughly 1982 to 1984, I do not remember a single discussion about politics ever taking place at Gilgal. Our pastor did not preach about politics. There were no classes about politics. And people rarely discussed politics in informal settings. Now, I had always been a political junkie as a kid. But the whirlwind of activity at Gilgal Bible Chapel made it hard to stay abreast of the comings and goings of life in Washington, D.C., We were too busy living out our faith in the real world. Growing up, the greatest political influence on my life was my Italian grandfather, an immigrant who spent most of his life as a teamster, driving delivery trucks for Newark breweries, making daily runs to Albany, New York, Wilmington, Delaware, and Riverhead, Long Island. I am a Democrat, he used to say, because the Democrats are the party of the working man. Every Sunday when we would visit my grandparents' house for pasta dinner, I would get a lesson in American political history that usually centered around the Democratic icons of my grandfather's generation. I felt as if FDR, JFK, and LBJ were long-lost uncles. When it came to my own personal convictions, at least politically, I was a Democrat. This was the cultural baggage I carried with me into that chapel service in November 1984. I had never once thought about how my new born-again faith might affect my politics. It was complicated enough trying to learn the books of the Bible and the language, music, and influential voices of this strange new evangelical subculture that I had just entered. So needless to say, I was startled when Jamie thanked God for Reagan's victory. I was even more surprised that his clearly political prayer did not seem to phase any of my fellow classmates, mostly kids who grew up in the evangelical church, asked Jesus into their hearts when they were six years old, and attended Christian schools during their K through 12 years. My 18-year-old self now began to wonder, does God care about the winner of a presidential election? Did my church back home in New Jersey forget to tell me that when I prayed my kitchen table prayer, I was not only taking up my cross and following Jesus in a life of discipleship, but was also joining a political party? As I look back on that morning, I now realize that Jamie's prayer was the first time I actually came to grips with the fact that my experience at this Bible college was not only preparing me for a potential career in the Christian ministry. It was also, in an extracurricular way, I would say, initiating me into membership in a political movement, the Christian right. While I was finishing my last couple of years at Philadelphia College of Bible, Barack Obama also had a conversion experience. The then community organizer responded to an altar call at Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. It was a daytime service, he told Sun-Times religion reporter Kathleen Falsani, And it was also a powerful moment. It was powerful for me because it not only confirmed my faith, it not only gave shape to my faith, but I think also allowed me to connect the work I had been pursuing with my faith. Barack Obama was born again. But unlike my conversion, Which eventually led me into a subculture that fused evangelical faith with conservative politics. Obama's conversion led him to embrace a different kind of Christian politics. This was the politics of the African American church, the Black social gospel tradition of his pastor, Jeremiah Wright, and a politicized faith, best represented by the Democratic Party, that sought to apply Jesus' teachings to the poor and oppressed. In fact, the people in the religious world Obama entered after his conversion had been arguing for nearly a century with the people in the religious world I entered after my conversion. And while my faith community was predominantly white and Obama's was predominantly black, the argument was also taking place over theology and the very meaning of the gospel. I entered a religious world shaped by American fundamentalism. Philadelphia College of Bible was founded by C.I. Schofield, the editor of the famed Schofield Bible, a fixture on the nightstand of fundamentalists for much of the 20th century. During the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the early 1900s, the leaders of my new community waged a battle royale against the leaders of the so-called social gospel. This was a turn-of-the-century Christian movement more concerned with addressing the social ills of this world than preparing souls for the next world. I don't know how much Obama knew about the fundamentalist-modernist controversy when he walked down the aisle at Trinity United Church of Christ. But he would soon, as a representative of a modern-day social gospel, find his harshest political opponents among the descendants of the fundamentalists now disguised in the culture war armor of the Christian right. In this series of a History of Evangelical and Politics podcast, we will explore this political battle. But first, let's go back in time and set the stage for Obama's eventual response to Jeremiah Wright's altar call.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corrient,
1: The writer Stephen Mansfield accurately points out that Barack Obama was the first president of the United States not raised in a Christian home. His maternal grandmother, Madeline Lee Payne, was nurtured spiritually by Kansas Methodists who appeared to have lost their 19th century evangelical edge and had settled comfortably into America's Protestant establishment. These followers of John Wesley and Francis Asbury as Obama would later write in his memoir, Dreams from My Father, kept their house spotless and ordered great books through the mail. They read the Bible, but generally shunned the tent revival circuit, preferring a straight-backed form of Methodism that valued reason over passion and temperance over both. Though Madeline's parents did not permit her to drink alcohol, dance, or play cards, she occasionally violated these orders by sneaking out of the house and heading to Wichita to hear Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, and Tommy Dorsey perform at the city's Blue Moon Club. During her senior year at Augusta High School, Madeline met Stanley Armour Dunham and fell in love. They got married on the night of her senior prom. Stanley came from a family of God-fearing Baptists, but he was always a bit of a rebel. Obama has suggested that his grandfather's rebellious streak may have been the result of growing up without a mother. When Stanley's mother committed suicide, eight-year-old Stanley found her body. As a married couple, Stanley and Madeline Dunham showed little interest in organized religion. After serving in World War II, Stanley found work in the furniture business. They lived in El Dorado, Kansas, Seattle, Washington and eventually ended up in Honolulu shortly after Hawaii became a state in 1959. At one point during their time in Seattle, the Dunhams attended East Shore Unitarian Church. Obama wrote that his grandfather liked the idea that Unitarians drew on the scriptures of all the great religions. It's like you get five religions in one, he would say. Madeline, ever the rationalist, was not overly thrilled about her husband's eclectic religious beliefs, reminding him that religion's not supposed to be like buying breakfast cereal. Obama described his grandfather as the dreamer in the family. He possessed the sort of restless soul that might have found refuge in religious belief had it not been for those other characteristics, an innate rebelliousness, a complete inability to discipline his appetites, and a broad tolerance of other people's weakness, That precluded him from getting too serious about anything. Stanley and Madeline had one child, a daughter, Stanley Ann Dunham. With a name like Stanley, you cannot blame her for going by her middle name. As far as we know, Ann Dunham had no religious faith to speak of. When Barack came along, she would regale him with stories about hypocritical Christians and sanctimonious preachers who believed the earth was created in seven literal days or evangelists who dismissed people to a literal hell if they did not believe in Jesus. She relayed accounts of gossipy church ladies who shunned others for their lack of propriety, even as they concealed their own dirty little secrets. She talked of church elders who prayed on Sunday only to spew racial epithets on Monday through Saturday. As Obama put it, for my mother, Organized religion too often dressed up close mindedness in the garb of piety, cruelty, and oppression in the cloak of righteousness. Anne Dunham believed that all world religions had something to teach her son. She read Barak the Bible, the Koran, and Greek, Norse, and African mythology. She took him to church on Easter and Christmas, and to Buddhist temples on Chinese New Year. They visited Shinto shrines and Hawaiian burial grounds. Obama would later write, I was made to understand that such religious samplings required no sustained commitment on my part, no introspective exertion or self-flagellation. In the end, Ann Dunham viewed religion through the eyes of an anthropologist. Religion was a way that man attempted to control the unknowable, and understand the deeper truths about lives, Obama would say about his mother's view of religion. It was a phenomenon to be treated with a suitable respect, but with a suitable detachment as well. But for all her academic detachment on matters of religion and faith, Obama still described his mother as the most spiritually awakened person that I've ever known. She had what he called an unswerving instinct for kindness, charity, and love, and spent much of her life acting on that instinct. She instilled in young Barak many of the values that Christian children learn in Sunday school. Honesty, empathy, discipline, delayed gratification, and work. But most of all, Barak wrote, she possessed an abiding sense of wonder, a reverence for life and its precious transitory nature that could properly be described as devotional. While an undergraduate at the University of Hawaii, Ann Dunham met Barack Obama Sr., the first African student to attend the university. Born as Baraka Obama in the Kenyan village of Kogelo, the future president's father changed his name to Barack, Blessed One, after he converted, if you could call it that, at the age of six, from Islam to Anglicanism, under the careful guidance, of course, of Christian missionaries. The conversion did not last long. By the time Obama Sr. arrived in Hawaii as part of a program to send promising young Kenyans to the United States for an education to prepare them for a post-colonial society, Obama Sr. was an atheist. Ann and Barack eventually had a son together, who they named Barack Hussein Obama, and the couple was married shortly thereafter. When Barack Sr. had a chance to pursue graduate work at Harvard University, he left Dan and Barack in Hawaii, and the marriage soon disintegrated, ending in a divorce a few years later. The future president does not remember much about his father, apart from a month-long visit Barack Sr. made to Honolulu in 1971, when Barack Jr. was 10 years old. He would never see his father again after that. Barack Obama Sr. died in a car accident in Kenya in 1982, while his son was an undergraduate at Columbia University. Ann Dunham eventually married another University of Hawaii international student. Lolo Sotero was working on a master's degree in geography when he married Ann. Shortly thereafter, the Indonesian government called Lolo back home to serve the country in the wake of its recent civil war. Ann and Barak, was now six years old, went with him. Barak's mother and stepfather enrolled him at St. Francis, a Catholic elementary school in Jakarta. Barak was registered as a Muslim, largely because Lolo was a Muslim by birth. His school records would become a source of political controversy in later years, but we probably shouldn't make too much of this. Though Lolo occasionally attended Muslim events in Jakarta, He did not practice Islam. Ann and Lolo's daughter, Maya, Barack's half-sister, told New Yorker editor David Remnick that Lolo never went to prayer services except for big communal events. Barack would describe his stepfather as a man who, like his mother, had a skeptical bent when it came to religious matters. After completing his course at St. Francis, Obama enrolled in what he called a predominantly Muslim elementary school. But he doesn't remember much about his religious training in either of the religious schools he attended in Jakarta. In the Muslim school, he would later write, the teacher wrote to tell my mother that I made faces during Quranic studies. And in the Catholic school, he recalls opening his eyes during prayer, looking around the room, and noticing that nothing happened and no angels descended. All he could see was a parched old nun and 30 brown children muttering words. True to form, Anne was more concerned that her son was learning his multiplication tables than imbibing the finer points of the Catholic Catechism, or the Muslim call to evening prayer. As Barack grew older, Anne wanted him to continue his education in the United States. In 1971, he returned to Honolulu to live with his grandparents, and started fifth grade at Punahou School, an elite private college preparatory academy. Founded by congregational missionaries in 1841, Punahou boasted an impressive roster of graduates that included John Gardner, LBJ's Secretary of Health Education and Welfare, and the architect of what we know today as Medicare, the Inca explorer Hiram Bingham, and Sun Yat-sen, the first president of the Republic of China. Stanley was so impressed by the Punahou campus that he whispered to his grandson during the admissions tour. Hell bear, this isn't school, this is heaven. You might just get me to go back to school with you. Barack was accepted with a scholarship to help defray the cost of tuition. According to Remnick, the only trace of Punahou's Congregationalist past was a weekly chapel. Where students heard readings from the Bible, recited secular poetry, and listened to renditions of songs like Sounds of Silence, Blowing in the Wind, and The Rose. Punahou was not unlike many American boarding schools founded by Christians that had eventually given way to the forces of secularization. In Obama's required eighth grade class on Christian ethics, for example, students lied around on floor cushions and discussed topics such as the meaning of friendship while listening to Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water. One of Obama's classmates described it as a teenage group therapy session. Today, 40 years later, Punahou identifies as a non-denominational school that embraces all cultural and religious traditions while simultaneously honoring Punahou's Christian roots. Obama graduated from Punahou in 1979 and enrolled at Occidental College in Los Angeles. If Obama studied religion or spirituality at Occidental, a school founded by Presbyterians that was almost entirely secular when he arrived, he does not say much about it in his memoirs. Most of his remembrances from his two years in LA have to do with friendships, coming to terms with his identity as a young man of mixed race, and trying to find the best way to enter more fully into the African-American experience. Two of his closest friends at Occidental were Muslims. Muhammad Hassan Shandu and Wahid Hamid were both Pakistanis with radical political views, and they became important conversation partners for Obama as he developed his own political convictions. For his junior year, Obama transferred to Columbia University an Ivy League institution in New York City. He rented a sparse room in Harlem near the campus and spent most of his time in the library, absorbing new ideas and leading what he would describe as an ascetic existence. And this, by the way, was not an understatement. As part of his intellectual monasticism, Obama regularly fasted on Sundays. During his years at Columbia, Obama occasionally attended services at the Abyssinian Baptist Church, a Harlem landmark. Between 1908 and 1936, during the pastorate of Adam Clayton Powell, Sr., Abyssinian was the largest Protestant congregation in the United States. Powell is widely known for his work on behalf of civil rights and his influence on the public theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The German theologian taught Sunday school at the church while he was a visiting student at nearby Union Theological Seminary. When Obama attended Abyssinian, he probably listened to sermons delivered by Samuel DeWitt Proctor, a friend of Martin Luther King Jr. who played an active role during the civil rights movement. When he finished his undergraduate degree at Columbia, Obama spent about a year in the corporate world before moving to Chicago to begin work as a community organizer. It was in the Windy City, serving alongside men and women from local black churches on Chicago's South Side, that he began the spiritual and intellectual pilgrimage that led him to walk down the aisle at Jeremiah Wright's Trinity United Church of Christ. Stay tuned. In our next episode, we will go to church with a 20-something Barack Obama. The History of Evangelicals and Politics is produced by Casey Lehman. It is a podcast for patrons of Current, an online platform that includes daily commentary, reflection, and judgment from diverse and talented writers representing positions across the political spectrum. Current also hosts The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections on American history, politics, religion, and academic life. This podcast is made possible by our patrons. Please consider supporting us by heading over to currentpub.com and clicking the red support button.